Philippian, the book of Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison at the church in Philippi. And while it is a short book, it is one of the most powerful letters that Paul wrote um, during his missionary journey. The book of Philippians is so powerful because it shares Paul's story. It shares Paul's love. You get this deep sense as you read through the pages of how much Paul really loved Jesus. Right? It was, he, he was everything to him. And you also get the sense as you read through this letter that Paul has this cheerful joy despite his circumstances, right? He's in prison, he might be executed, but yet you read through and the tone of this letter is here's this dude and he is really happy. And he's happy because of Jesus. The book of Philippians also shows as Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, that he really appreciates them. He appreciates the work that they are doing as a community. And in this letter, Paul also offers pastoral advice for the sort of problems that may arise when a community of believers meets together. Last week, Pastor Joe started on chapter 2, and he took us through verses 1 through 11. And what I want to do the next two weeks, surprise, everybody's still on vacation next week. I was supposed to be on vacation, that's okay. Apparently when I took six months off, that was all the vacation I'll ever get. Uh, no, but this week we're going to go through the next part of the letter, because it is a letter. Um, we had a pastor teach us once that when we're reading these letters, we were reading something that was written to somebody else. So we have to approach it from reading over the shoulder, but it is a letter. It wasn't written, he didn't write like, one, dear Philippians. Too. Like it's, we need to read it in the context that is, it is a letter. So part of the letter this week, we're going to continue on with verses 12 and 13. Next week, we'll finish up the letter with verses, verses 14 through 16. This morning, what I want us to think about is how we have an effective, serious conversation with our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And especially if you are on the giving end of the conversation, how you have this conversation, how it impacts people, it is vitally important when you put this conversation together. And Paul is, he is like a conversational ninja. He is a guru at communicating effectively with people. And he's about to have a serious yet very loving conversation with them as he gives out this pastoral advice that we've already talked about this morning. So to set up our conversation today, I actually want to take us back to some of the verses that we read last week, because it's a setup for the two that we're going to go through today. If you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to open it up to the second chapter of Philippians, verses 5 through 11. If you don't, that's okay, because boom, here it is. Let's read it together. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven 
and on earth and under the earth, we will all submit, heaven, earth, and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of our Father. And that scripture is the reason why we sang about Jesus this morning. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Let's continue with our two verses this morning. Let's go to 12 and 13. Therefore, another therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So I said that Paul was a genius at conversation, and if you dig through and you read, you can start to see what he does. Paul has three things that he does, three parts to his conversation, and for our conversation this morning, we're going to rename it. Serious conversation rules, and there are three of them. The first thing he does is he sets the tone. In our serious conversations, we need to set the tone. Don't be vague. A lot of people don't like to be, you know, they don't like to live in that gray, vague area, especially if the tone is serious. And make sure there's a why. So you're giving people the reason why you're talking to them about this so you don't come across like an arrogant jerk or a blowhard, right? It's important. Paul accomplishes the first serious conversation rule by setting the tone, and he does this a few ways. The first example is what we just read in verse 12. Therefore... And what's the therefore meaning? Because of Jesus. Those verses that we read in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Therefore, because of Jesus. Example two. But then he stops and he says, my dear friends. Paul lets the people know how he feels about them. And that's really important when you're about to have a serious conversation with somebody that people know how you feel about them. And think about it. What is a dear friend? Well, I think the friend, word friend is used a little, little too liberally. I have approximately 400 friends on Facebook. I know. The McCurdy's, how many do you guys have? Thousands, right? Are they all your true dear friends? <laughs> they actually might be, but that's why we love you guys, right? But think about the word friend. A true dear friend is somebody who, together with you, because you work together, right, your friendship, it's not one-sided. One doesn't give or take more than the other. And if that's happening, I don't want to, you know, kind of burst your bubble. That's not a friendship. But a true dear friend will laugh with you. They'll cry with you. They will celebrate with you. They will share with you your life, right? And a true dear friend will never, ever shy away when they need to talk with you about something serious, right? Because they are your friend, and you should be willing to hear what they have to say because they are your friend. Paul follows up his expression of love, my dear friends, with encouragement. He tells them to keep up the good work, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Serious conversations, it helps to be an encourager. Paul did this. We are encouraged to do so as well. What Paul is saying to the Philippians is, you've always done a good job. You've always been obedient. Not only when I've been with you, 
but much more in my absence. And there's an emphasis in the text on much more is kind of a, right? It's a little bit of a poke, much more in my absence. And this would be really important to Paul as a ministry leader. And I want you to think about it from the perspective of a ministry leader. How effective we are in our ministry is greatly determined by how people are in our absence, right? We as the church, and if you know me, I'm absolutely really including myself in this part. We as a church, we tend to want to cling to our ministry leaders, especially our pastors, right? We put them sometimes as the head of our church. We look at our pastor for direction, for leadership, for guidance. And when that pastor is removed from us for whatever reason, sometimes we as the body of Christ, we might not be as firm and obedient in our faith. We might not obey in their absence. Maybe we might leave. Maybe we might not support the ministry as much. But what Paul is saying at this point, he reminds us, by the example that we read in verses 5 through 11, that Jesus is the head of the church. Remember how that verse ended? Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above, above every name. That means that he is above every name, that Jesus is the head of our church. And this would have been really important to Paul because he knew that the people were probably very concerned about him. The, the church in Philippi, it was one of the first churches that, that Paul planted. So imagine if you are that church and you find out that your ministry leader is in prison, possibly facing execution, that is going to make you really upset and it might cause you to lose focus also. So Paul is encouraging them, but now much more in my absence. Follow your real leader. Your real leader is Jesus. I, Paul, or whatever your pastor, whoever your pastor is, he is my ministry tool, but Jesus is the leader. I like Paul. Paul is my second favorite person in, in the whole Bible. Um, Jesus is first. And I'm not saying that because it's like the Christian thing to say. Jesus is like the legit number one person. Paul is number two. Peter, if you're wondering, you probably aren't, but I wrote this out and kind of thought it was funny. Peter, thanks Pam. Peter is third. Peter is third because he's a big mouth, right? Peter was a big mouth and he was bold and he did stuff without thinking, and it's not that I can necessarily identify that with that, but I can a little bit. He's bold, he's got your back, he's your buddy, and then he's like, oh. But his faith is still really strong. But Paul has always been my number two guy, um, and I've held him in that place of esteem because of his passion for Jesus, which we learn a little bit about in this letter. But if you don't know the story of who Paul is, Paul used to have another name. His name was Saul. And before he became Paul, awkward, right, that there's like a couple of consonants apart, Paul uh, used to be Saul, and he was the chief persecutor of Christians. He hunted them down, and he killed them, and he threw them in prison, and he, that was his job. Until one day, when he was on the road, Jesus stopped him in his tracks, and he said, why do you persecute me? And from that moment on, his life was forever changed, and he became passionate. That was his goal, was to share the good news of Jesus Christ. So I admire him for that. I admire him for the way he was a teacher, the way he was a mentor, the way he mentored younger people, especially Timothy. 
And I really admire him because he is not vague in his teaching. And that brings us to our third, second, sorry, second conversation rule, don't be vague. Paul could have stopped at continue to be obedient, but he didn't. Remember, like I said a few minutes ago, he couldn't do that. He knew that his people loved him, and they were probably heartbroken over his circumstances. So he tells them how to continue in their obedience. He sets them up to fail. He doesn't leave them with more questions than answers. And he tells them, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. They probably knew what that meant, but for me that was, that was still a little bit vague. And it's been vague for many years because that passage in and of itself is often misinterpreted. Because what some people think that means is work so you earn your salvation. Meaning if I am the best Megan that I can be, and putting Jesus aside, don't hate me, it's for like 30 seconds. Let's say I'm a Megan and I don't believe in Jesus, but you know what, I'm actually a really good person. I say kind, kind words, I think kind thoughts. I go to the soup kitchen on Christmas and Thanksgiving and I serve food to the homeless and I donate my money and I walk old ladies across the street and I run into a burning building and I save puppies from dying, that all of these things that one day when my number is called, because that's an eventuality, that's one of the few guarantees we have in life, that our number is going to be called. And I stand in front of my creator, he says, you know what, you did a good job saving those puppies, come on in. And that's not what Paul is saying at all. Don't be vague. He provides practical application for them in the serious conversation. This continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's a call for us to put forth real effort into our Christian lives so that everything we believe in is every, evidenced in every single thing that we do. But it's not a one-and-done kind of deal. And what that means, some people take that to mean, once we accept, we don't have anything else to do. And that's not what Paul is saying at all. It is not as simple as saying, I profess my faith in Jesus Christ and I accept him as my Lord and Savior. And then I sit back and I do wait for the call to come home. That's not what he is saying at all. Paul is appealing for a life and a lifestyle that is consistent with the demands of our faith. Here it is. Yes, you are saved by faith. Yes, you are saved by the free grace of God. It's a free gift. You cannot earn it. Trust me, you don't do anything to deserve it, but here it is for you. But you are saved to live. Your faith must move from believing to living. You must live out your salvation, and that involves a lifestyle of obedience, just like our model, Christ Jesus. Go back to verses 5 through 11 who obeyed to the point of humiliation and death. Our words, thoughts, deeds, they always need to point to the who and the what we believe in. But it's very important at this point that we also remember the context that Paul is writing in. He's not writing to Megan of Philippi. In fact, he... <laughs> Thanks, Bill. He... <laughs> 
He um, is not writing to an individual. In fact, so often in Paul's writings, he is writing adamantly against an individual kind of faith that is arrogant, that is conceited, that seeks to serve and to fulfill its own needs. He is writing to the entire church. So if we look at this and we go back to the Greek text, the your in the Greek is plural. Paul says, work out your salvation, community of believers, work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. And how the word is used in the text, it's an imperative. It's not a request. So what, what does that mean? It's a command. And it's not Paul's command. Paul is encouraging. Remember, he's the encourager. He's encouraging people to obey the commands of God, just like Jesus did. See how Jesus set the tone for this entire conversation? And it continues to come through. It's important for the integrity of God's church that we remember to do this with fear and trembling, which can also be a little bit vague, because sometimes I think that our culture has the misconception, especially if you are not a Christian, maybe sometimes too, if you are still a Christian, and I hope to change your thought on that. Fear and trembling, they're not terror. It's not that God is like sitting up on the cloud right above the church and he's looking down and the lightning bolt is in his hand because he is going to smite you the minute you mess up. So you have to be afraid of him. Oh, I have to do my best. I have to work to earn my salvation, right? Because that's having a scary fear of God would mean that you have to work to earn your salvation. Fear and respect aren't terror. It's awe and respect for this great God of the universe who is magnificent and who is glorious, who created you, who shaped you and formed you before your mother even knew if you were a boy or a girl, he knew what you were going to be. But the minute you said, I do, he has high expectations for you, and we have to approach our creator with awe and respect. Serious conversation rule number three, Make sure there's a why. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody, especially a serious one, and you're like, what are you even, what are you saying right? Hello, go back. I don't do technology. You're having a serious conversation with somebody, and they're talking at you, at you, and you're like, I don't even know what you're saying to me right now. Make sure there's a why. And here's how Paul accomplishes this. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. What that means is that God, through his saving grace in this community, God who works in you, it's also a plural, he works in you to will and to act. He is at work among us. He supplies our working power. The minute we say, okay, I accept, we are filled with salvation, we are filled with grace, and we are also filled with the Holy Spirit through his help, should prompt changed behavior, right? It should prompt our changed behavior. We are filled with him. He supplies the working power. Think about a pitcher. Think about a pitcher. Your life is a pitcher, and God is the water. Your pitcher is going to get full eventually. That's how much grace and love and salvation is in you. And eventually it continues to be filled until it overflows right? It's overflowing everywhere, and it's permeating every part of your life. That's the working power that we are supplied with. 
And what does that mean to fulfill his good purpose? It doesn't mean that God is narcissistic. It means that he is on our side. He created us. He loves us. The Bible tells us that we are his favorite creation. If you ever think that you're not the favorite, or if you have a brother or sister who thinks they're the favorite, just tell them that you're God's favorite, and it doesn't really matter. I'm going to do that with my sister. She'll know that's not true, though. Um, <laughs> it makes him happy. He's on our side. It makes him happy to supply us with this working power, to will and to act, to have our lives be evidence, to shine like lights. And that's part of our text next week that we're going to get to, that our lives shine out for him. I want to read the scripture together. Let's read the whole piece one more time. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So I said earlier that this week is part of next week. They go together. So these are the things that I want us to take together, to put together, to bring with us for this conversation that we're going to continue next week. The first is that Christ's work on the cross, his humility and obedience, should be at the very forefront of every single thing that we do, and especially our serious conversations with people or our tough conversations with people. Because when we keep Jesus first, we remember his humility which helps us to be a better deliverer of that message. We learn that we have to set the tone, right? Especially for serious conversations. When we set the tone and we let people know how we feel about them, it should help to open their mind to understanding that the approach that we're taking with them is coming from a place of love and of grace, and not of condemnation or arrogance or judgment. And don't be vague. A lot of people don't like that. And if you're giving the conversation, don't be vague. That's really not fair to do to people. Let them know. Give them practical application. Here's how I want you to do this, or here's what I think could help you. We also learned that we cannot work to earn our salvation, and it's not a one-and-done kind of deal. We must work out our salvation in community with other believers. Salvation is this unbelievable free gift of God, right? It's free. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it, but he gives it to us freely. And after he gives it to us, we have to work out this salvation in community with others, loving one another side by side, being humble side by side, sitting and learning side by side, standing and singing side by side, volunteering side by side, praying side by side. Because God is on the side of his people. And it gives him good pleasure. It makes him so happy to work on our behalf. It makes God happy to give you the power to work out your salvation with your brothers and sisters. Next week, the conversation continues. And you'll understand a little bit more of why we kind of took this route today to understand the setting the tone, these serious conversation rules. And I do hope that you will join us next week.
For now, if you would please pray with me this morning before we sing one final song. Gracious God, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you. Thank you first and foremost for your son. We can't ever begin to understand the work that he completed on the cross, um, his obedience, his humiliation, and we thank you for it. We thank you for the free gift of your salvation and of your grace. We thank you for our brothers and sisters, the people who are around us this morning. We thank you that we have the chance to work with them and to live with them in community. We ask that you give us the strength to, to continue working with them side by side in loving humility and with obedience, always keeping Jesus as our primary example. And God, if we ever do have to have a serious conversation with one of our brothers and sisters, we ask right now that you prevene and that you are over that conversation and that you help us to think about you and you help us to tell people whether it's a serious conversation or not, actually, God, help us to let our brothers and sisters know how we feel about them, that we love them. I thank you for everybody who is here today. I ask that you bless them, that when you leave, uh, that when they leave this place, they go with your full armor. In the name of your son, amen. I invite you to stand.